New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. Our guest today is Jamin Warren, CEO, founder of 256, a strategic consultancy that helps brands engage in the world of gaming. Thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Happy to be here. You're a former Wall Street Journal reporter turned media entrepreneur turned gaming marketing expert and 256, your current company, grew out of your previous business, Killscreen, and the evolution of your experience seems to influence your approach. So I'd like to start there with Killscreen. So going back into the Wayback Machine, it's 2009, (laughs) the economy imploded and is now struggling to recover. You leave your arts reporting beat at the Wall Street Journal to start this business that focuses on the intersection of games, play, and culture. Why that space and how did that business evolve? Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. In retrospect, obviously the, uh, the person I am today would go back and tell the person then like, you know, the economy is terrible, <laughs> right? So <laughs> I wasn't thinking about it at the time. And I was just a cub reporter at the Wall Street Journal. So there was not a huge financial <laughs> financial hit for me. It made it easier to, to jump ship. But yeah, I mean, I was hired as a journal to cover arts and entertainment for them, mm-hmm. specifically music, because there really weren't a lot of culture people at the paper. And so the, the time frame was really interesting. Again, looking back, I, I wasn't thinking about that too much. But mm-hmm. 2008, 2009 is a really interesting time for video games. It's really, I think, when you look at sort of where video games are today, it's a real inflection point because you started to see a couple different things happen. One was you had three big video game consoles released in a very short period of time. The Nintendo Wii, which was a huge hit for Nintendo, the Xbox 360, and the PlayStation 3. All three consoles were incredibly popular. And along with them came a lot of very popular titles. Grand Theft Auto, for example, Modern Warfare. I mean, these were all titles that were doing big numbers, which was, of course was a deep interest to me as a culture person. But you also started to see the rise of mobile gaming as well. So you had things like the App Store, was that was a new thing at the time, and games like Angry Birds. But also there were things happening on PC gaming, Minecraft, Roblox, so, you know, even things like Fortnite. Those were around that time period. And for me, as a, as a culture person, I was like, this is a no-brainer. Games are a huge commercial force. They're breaking all kinds of records as the paper of record for industry and finance. Certainly, there's a story there. But Mm. also, as a culture person, I was super interested because you're starting to see new types of games that were being developed with new technologies. And so I went to my editor and was like, look, I think I should be writing about video games more often because this is a growth space. And it's something I don't need to write about games all the time. But I think it would, we would be remiss if we didn't cover video games and put together this right. three-page memo that I would send to him. And he sat down and he didn't even make it through the first page. And I was like, yeah, I just don't get it. I don't get this oh, video game gosh. thing. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. So oh, oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was unequivocal. There was no, for okay. to his credit, he was pretty clear about what he wanted. But I felt, I still felt very strongly that we were missing something. And I was covering other things in the space, social media. And I just felt like there was something happening at, in, at the intersection of games and culture that was worth interrogating. And so mm-hmm. like a naive 20-something, I 
left and I was like, I'll start my own magazine. And I did. We did a Kickstarter project and I spent the next couple of years starting this business called Killscreen, which is an arts and culture magazine and media company. We did the first ever arcade at the Museum of Modern Art. And when the Supreme Court was deciding whether or not video games would be protected free speech, we got cited in an amicus brief. And we did the first ever music partnership with Pitchfork. And we were just doing lots of, I felt like lots of really amazing groundbreaking things. The problem was that as a bootstrap media company, we just we just weren't hmm. making we just weren't making enough money. And around that time it was interesting for me being in New York City. New York is the center of so many things, center of finance. But not really gaming, isn't it? But not really gaming. Yeah. That, that's totally right. And I, I lived in New York and so I started around that time over the years I was getting calls from brands and agencies that were based in New York oftentimes and they're like, Look, we want to understand this video game thing and it would come in waves. So it would be like, Oh, World of Warcraft is big right now. We need someone mm. to talk to the team about it or hey, this gamification thing, like what's happening with Facebook gaming right now is really big. We need someone to talk about it. And I didn't really have a product. I didn't have a a business, so to speak. The only thing I could think of was, oh, I can charge you to give a talk or something like that. And But out of of that grew some good relationships around developing brand publishing, editorial content, where we would take what we knew about games and then produce white label content for brands like Intel or eBay. And when I sat down and was looking at my financial statement, my P&L at the end of... I know those are different statements, but when I was looking at the end of the year in 2018, I was like, you know, actually my business functionally is a consulting business that has this media thing tacked onto it. And it it would make sense for me to spend more of my time and effort there. And so I still do Kill Screen as a side project and it really influenced the way I think about things. But from an entrepreneurial standpoint, making the transition over into client services was definitely a bit of a a financial no-brainer. And so that's what we've been focused on at, at 256, which is helping brands talk to gamers, particularly ones that don't have experience doing that. We help them think about what's the the best approach into the market. So a long time spent thinking about the intersection of games, culture, media for quite some time and have done it in a bunch of different forms. But yeah, the through line has has always been games and all of their wonderful facets. (laughs) So what's the significance of the name 256? Yeah, that's a good question. So we, when we started Kill Scream, we actually had a conference that we did and that was called 256. 256 is, was the level on which many games hit their kill screen. So a kill screen for folks who don't know is it's basically the gaming equivalent of the blue screen of death on windows or if anybody's gotten that spinning beach ball on a Mac, right? Those are, those are types of kill screens. And in old video games, you used to have to build a custom chip. Today, you can run games on all different types of chips. But in the early days of video games, if you made, for Donkey Kong, for example, you build a custom chip that had both the hardware and the software that would work in tandem. And so what could happen sometimes if you played the game well enough, you would get basically a kill screen. And that often happened on level 256. So that's the that's the That's really fun. That's a very inside <laughs> kind of thing. So you, yeah, yeah, yeah. you saw this white space, this service white space that grew out of the digital publishing knowledge base that you already had and you decided to claim it. How competitive was it at the time that you started that? Let's see. That's a good question. It was for when, when I was starting 256 or when I was starting Kill Screen? Or, 256. Or so we've moved. We've moved yeah, yeah. We're now at, <laughs> it's 13 years later and yeah, you've launched 256. Yeah. What's the competitive we, landscape we, into which you launched? It's better now than it used to be. I'd say there, there's, there's, there's probably been two big, two big ways that we deal with competition. The first is on the client side. 
one of the big changes has been, and I underestimated this when I when I started the business. There's a big generational gap depending on where you are. I'm so I turned 40 this year, so I'm sort of in between these two different generations. Mm. Depending on which direction you go, your relationship to video games really changes a ton. And so if you go older than me, you you might be hard pressed to find someone who's playing video games or has a connection to video games that's not through their children. If you go younger than me, it's 90% of kids under the age of 18 play video games. That is the air in which they the air in which they breathe, the water in which they swim. And so from a client perspective at the time, we were still facing a lot of substantial headwinds as it relates to just making the case for gaming as something that brands should be spending time so the value in. Prop if it wasn't was challenging at that Exactly. That. Exactly. Yeah. And so as some things have changed over the last couple of years. One is that older decision makers on the marketing side, they have kids. And so they at least are seeing they're getting more firsthand experience with gaming through their kids. So they're like, oh, my kid wants to build a custom PC or they're spending all this time on the summer engaging in social spaces on Fortnite or Roblox. So that's the first big thing. On the, We don't have a ton of direct competition, but we do have a fair number of substitutes. So there are other parties that may provide, may provide services that are not ours. So that could be the gaming platforms themselves. So things like Twitch, for example, they obviously okay. do a lot of brand as well as sports teams or gaming influencers. And then on the agency side, there are some agencies that focus specifically on gaming. I'm actually on the esports and gaming steering committee for the 4As, the trade group for the advertising industry. And so there are some other agencies that are starting gaming specific verticals. The, the difference for us is that we're completely agnostic. So unlike someone else who works in the gaming space, we are driven by audience and driven by strategy. And so if the final end is going to be opening a Discord channel that builds community or to start your own Twitch streaming studio or to in-game advertising, we are agnostic about the output. So unlike other right. partners who'd say, oh, well, obviously if you're from Twitch, yeah. you're going to deal with Twitch. Yeah, exactly. Right? So. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I, I totally get it. It's like, yeah, if I worked at Twitch, I would say like that's, if I well, worked at Twitch, I would say the exact same thing. So. <laughs> well, you have, you've got some very impressive clients, Intel, YouTube, Google, Kickstarter, just to name a few. These companies have huge data lakes, a lot of big brains. What type of insight are you bringing to the table that they don't have? Do they just not get the connection? What is it that what is your yeah. insight? What is your piece? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know, I think it's a couple different things. One is just focus. When you talk, talk to folks at bigger companies like that, they are spread across so many different interest areas. And so they may or may not have a gaming specific vertical. And mm. then if they do, it may not necessarily be populated with the right types of people. So the usually the issue we find is like there's basically three, there's a threefold, a threefold challenge that a lot of organizations face. They, uh, they need, they struggle with marketing to gamers in terms of organizational fit. They struggle to reach gamers in terms of audience fit and they struggle to reach gamers in terms of marketing fit. By organizational fit, I just mean like, are the right people in the right places? Is there clear ownership of gaming as a space? Because sometimes there isn't. It's like, oh, gaming is a sub vertical of something else. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if they have a, like some of our clients will have a gaming specific vertical. So there's clear delineation on the product side of the business, but on the marketing side of the business, the marketing lead is handling a, a bunch of different verticals. So that's a real challenge for marketing fit. Some clients just don't have the, um, they need someone to guide them in terms of where their opportunities are. So one of the things that's really hard with gaming is that there's so many ways to market to gamers and they're all different and they're all very specific. And so if you are a marketer who's accustomed to say, thinking about your channels as just being Instagram, Facebook, like digital, it's like digital channels, like you're listing them. It's like, oh, Instagram, Facebook, it's gonna be TikTok, Snapchat, right? These are all places where brands can play. 
And then someone along comes along and says, oh, actually gamers are spending time on Discord. They're spending time on Twitch. They're spending time on YouTube, but only specifically with gaming-related content. They're spending time in gaming-specific venues, having expertise there to guide markers and say, these are the places where you should be playing. And more importantly, these are the places where you have strength. And so I see this often. Clients will say, oh, I want to do some big thing in Fortnite, right? I want to do some big... I want to create an island in Animal Crossing. Does that align with where your audience is? Does that align with your internal capabilities in terms of what you can actually do as an organization? Do you have the ability to track attribution to make sure this is even in fact effective? So, And then that last piece in terms of audience fit is we believe that at this point, we're moving out of a world where people ask, do you play games? And we're moving into this world where you ask people, what games do you play? And so I'm Mm -hmm. a firm believer that there is a gaming audience for everyone, but you often need someone to guide them. So if you are a fashion brand that targets women in their 40s and 50s, for example, you can absolutely market to your audience through a gaming lens, but you do need someone often to come in and say, hey, look, spend your time on Windows casual games or spend more time on mobile, or actually you should be doing more social executions and just speaking to that side of your audience already. So it's just it's really just having someone who's focused who can come in. And that's our thing. We don't want to be like the all-up creative AOR for big brands. We just want to mm. focus on the gaming stuff. And so we work well with partners as well because they're not having to make a decision between their existing partnerships or their internal creative services team. We come in, we do something that's super specialized. Sometimes it's a short engagement. Sometimes it's a long one. But our focus is crystal clear. We just are focused on gaming. And insofar as you are interested in that and want to enhance what you're doing or do something for the first time, will be a good fit for you. So that's the case they make for for those big companies. Right. Well, gaming is huge. Your Wall Street (laughs) Journal editor. (laughs) It missed the boat. It's been smashing Hollywood's earnings and in 2021 global games market posted $180 billion in revenue, which is more than Hollywood and music combined. So we kind of missed the boat there in terms of the early <laughs> edge crazy pants. Anyway, but that, that's a monolithic number, which combines some of the games you talked about, console games, free-to-play games, esports, mobile games, AR, VR. Do you play across all of these different ecosystems or do you have... I don't- I mean, I I certainly try. I mean, I I, I try to stay as literate as possible. We internally go through a lot of different things. I mean, one thing that's also really important is when we talk about gamers, there's three ways that we think of someone can be a gamer. There's affinity, activity, and identity. Affinity just refers to who is your social graph. And so there are people who maybe they don't spend a lot of time playing games, but a lot of their friends do, and they engage in social activities that revolve around games. But Mm -hmm. they may not think of themselves as a gamer. Likewise, you might have someone who, from an activity standpoint, so someone who spends a lot of time playing single-player games, for example. I find it's often with women gamers, for example. Activity levels are as high, depending on the game, are as high as they are anywhere else, but they don't self-identify as gamers. And then the identity piece is that like sort of like, do I think of myself actively as a gamer? Is that something that I call myself? Is that important to my self-identity? And so... That question, when we're thinking about how do we stay up on games, it's not just playing games. It's are we spending time in communities, on forums, in the places where gamers are active? Are we attending the right events? Are we listening to the right types of conversations? And so there's a lot of ways outside of just playing games that you can be in the game space. And again, that's super important for clients to understand. Yeah, I was one of the things when I talk to people, even just when we're looking at sort of bog standard social platforms is every platform has a purpose for their audience. Mm -hmm. And so do you see that the audiences that are engaging on these gaming platforms, are they different? Is it the, the 
young Gen Z woman who has a lot of activity but doesn't identify that way, she tends to be on X platform. And so you can then, when you're talking to your brand about the audience they want to engage with, you that's how you parse it? Is that how it would work? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two different ways, you know, it's tricky because one thing that's really, that's really tricky is that certain gaming platforms can serve as an awareness building tool. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to use Fortnite as an example. So a lot of folks are familiar with the Fortnite Travis Scott engagement where they did the big virtual concert. (laughs) Yeah. It's a big example. It's sort of held up as the hallmark of how to advertise with games. And it is, it's very, I mean, it is very, is a very impactful thing. Most folks would look at that and say, oh, that's, and that drove, and then the conversions happen elsewhere, right? So they're driving to the Cactus Jack website and purchasing things. And it's great. Mm-hmm. It builds awareness around this new album that he has coming out. And so a lot of brands approach Fortnite, if it, just using that as an example, in that way. So they think, oh, it's only useful as a way to grab attention. And the reality is that it can be that if you get buy-in from Epic Games and you're one of the handful of things that they do in a given year, which tend to be skewed much more towards entertainment. So if you're a non-entertainment property, doing something in Fortnite is very difficult. But you could also use it as a retention, a rewards mechanism, creating a private experience just for your biggest fans and gaining that access as something. That's another way that... So So you could be downstream from a host of other things that you're doing from an awareness standpoint, but you could actually use the same exact platform in a totally different capacity. And so that's the thing that's really hard from a channel standpoint. But from an audience standpoint, you have the same types of challenges just simply because these places are so, so big. And if you think of gaming as culture, then you could sort of think of these individual platforms as being different types of subcultures because there's different types of activities that happen on there. And so that's, again, that's helping brands steer through a lot of that requires a lot of thought, consistent thought and effort because not only do the platforms have their own point of view, but the audiences have things that they want to do on those platforms as well. Well, it's interesting as I just earlier in the week interviewed Magdalena Beck, who's a researcher around brand engagement and gamification and and the, the cognitive elements that go into how it all works, why it works. And what's interesting is the more engaging the game, the less you actually retain some of this other information that brands want to convey, unless it is made somehow related to the product itself, which is why those big entertainment style things work yeah, exactly. in a yep. game, but they don't, and, and they are a waste <laughs> in this other capacity. <laughs> Whereas if you're engaging on a platform where people are engaging, that is the purpose of the platform, the the Twitches, the Discords. I, it, it's interesting how what what people are doing, even if you're you're still relating to the game content, you're engaging with them that way. How how do audiences feel? with regard to how they want a brand to show up. Yeah, that is a great... Is it different? It is. I mean, it isn't, isn't it? You know, it isn't, isn't. It's it's a tricky thing because gamers are humans. (laughs) At the end of the day, they're not like an alien race, you know, so they are susceptible to advertising. But at the same time, the way in which they relate to brands is really different. And so one, the biggest thing that we encourage folks to do is add value. And I know that sounds cheesy, but there's a lot of advertising to gamers that does not add value. It's intrusive or... Does it have um, to be game value or is it any... Oh, 
No, it doesn't have to be game value, but it just needs to enhance some piece of the experience. So whether it's providing education or support for Mm -hmm. particular gaming communities, or it's doing custom unlockables, if you're doing something inside of a video game that actually has meaningful, that has meaningful impact. You're using the Fortnite example. The reason why those entertainment properties work very well is because the skins are interesting, right? And so Mm -hmm. it adds value. It gives you something that you can showcase to your friends. And then in aggregate, there are so many different characters in the Fortnite universe now that allows for deep levels of customization but that's not every single not every video game is going to necessarily be that way but right. the, the more important thing is creating a long-term sustained plan to doing something inside of gaming whether it's big or small and so it's not the kind of space where you can just drop in do your thing and then peace out you need to make a long-term commitment and so we really discourage folks from doing one-off sponsorship deals for example that are just around a particular campaign really think long long term, how whatever you're putting together has connective tissue and ultimately creates a long term relationship with a gaming audience. And do you see a lot of one offs and then you judge whether or not it works or doesn't work? And that's really the wrong way to go about it. But if you can add value and you can do it in a way that feels diegetic, that feels natural to a gaming audience, then I think there's definitely a lot of room to play there. Well, it's interesting when you were talking about how marketers think of their channels and it almost sounds like what you're thinking, what you're saying is you do need to think a bit as if this is an ongoing channel that you're building a relationship. Okay. So exactly. if exactly. I'm a marketer and because gaming huge industry, as we already mentioned, people are pitching, oh, I, I can I can integrate you into a game. There are lots of people, maybe <laughs> without your expertise. How should a marketer be vetting that kind of pitch? What are the questions they should be asking? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great, great question. So I'm going to focus, I guess, just on the in-game portion of it with the caveat that doing something in-game, I think that often seems the most natural way for someone to engage with gamers, but there are lots of ways to do it. But for folks, for example, if you're trying to vet a gaming partner in particular, there's a couple things that you're going to want to, you're going to want to ask. One of the first big things is making sure that there's someone across the table from you who ideally has done this before. This is one thing that we see where some video game companies have brand partnership teams, but many of them do not. So some of them, for example, Rocket League, which is a popular, it's kind of like Hot Wheels meets FIFA soccer, a big soccer ball, and you steer mm-hmm. it around with a, with a giant car. They have a lot of brand sponsorships. They have a great brand team. They've done a lot of, they've done this before, and they have clear places where brands can play. Fortnite, obviously, Epic Games has done a great job in terms mm-hmm. of doing building partnerships there. But there are lots of other popular games where that's not necessarily the case, particularly if you want to do something inside of the game itself. So that's the first big thing is making sure that there's someone there who has done this work before because otherwise as a brand, you're going to be doing a lot of you're going to be doing a lot of education. The second big thing is just making sure that your interests are aligned. So if you're looking ultimately to drive sales, um, you know, working with a game maker, for example, may serve those needs, but it may not necessarily serve those needs. There might be options for you, for example, with in-game advertising, which is very conversion-based. That might be a better solution for you where you can advertise across a host of different video games as opposed to putting all of your eggs in all of your eggs in one basket. And timeline really matters there too, where game makers they have their attention. At the end of the day, what they want is the best experience for their players. And their focus or attention is going to be on in terms of partnerships or marketing is going to be directly correlated to where they are in the production process. So if they're right around launch time, that's probably a bad time to be thinking about doing something. (laughs) But post-launch might be better because all of a sudden they've gotten to the finish line and now they're actually looking for ways to extend 
you know, if they're building a game that they want players to stay engaged over a long period of time. So it might be better to do something a year in advance or a year afterwards, but doing something in and about a game's launch actually may not be the best time to do it simply because the game's already cooked. There's there's not going to be a ton of opportunities there. Unless you do something that to the value conversation, maybe you can help them with co-marketing arrangements to help them drive sales, or maybe you can do giveaways. Maybe So just thinking about what what you need and what a game company is going to need and making sure that those are ultimately on the same page is really, really important. And so obviously it gets more complicated from there, but those are three big things that I would be encouraging someone to look at when they're deciding whether or not they want to work with a, a gaming partner or not. When when doing this kind of thing, what kind of KPIs are realistic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is another great question. So that that's one of the things that we talk to clients. When you do something inside of a video game, which is one of the many ways that you can market to gamers, the KPIs that you are going to get are going to be limited by whatever KPIs your gaming partner collects. So if the data they are used to collecting is mostly player data, behavioral data on how people are playing the game, there may not be, say, viewability KPIs that you can oh, use when you okay. do something that's in-game there, right? So you do a good example is a lot of folks did Animal Crossing, basically island. They would build a custom island. I believe Joe Biden did one right. <laughs> a month before, before the election, right? And so we saw a lot of brands going about doing that. They build a custom island. They create a custom website to try to drive people towards the island. But then they have no information about how people are engaging on that island. Are they spending time in your universe? All you know is, Maybe if you set a gate up in advance, how many people went, but you can't necessarily control how you exit. So setting those expectations appropriately is is really hard, what kind of KPIs you're looking at. Whereas if you do something that is, for example, fashion brands were doing custom fashion items in Animal Crossing, but the place where that lived was on Instagram, well, then suddenly you have a whole suite of metrics and KPIs from your existing right. social engagement metrics that you can use. So that's the thing that we encourage clients to think about. It's like, look, you can do this big gaming thing, but you're gonna, it's a total, it, it might just be a total black box for you in terms right. of what's happening inside of this gaming universe. So that's why we, we t- encourage people to look at things like social. We encourage people to look at things around like community, real world events, things where you don't have to throw out your existing KPI playbook to talk to gamers. We're doing something custom inside of a game. All of a sudden, your measurement tools may not be as useful as you would like them to be. Right, right. Is is gaming a move that works for all brands? I mean, I'm biased. I would say yes, because everyone plays games, but... <laughs> well, but wait, but question. wait, wait. I'm going to push back on, on that because we talked earlier about the generational gap and I am an old lady and I don't play games, but I spend money. So as you were saying, it's not, do you play? It's what game do you play? So... You really believe it's for everybody? You really believe it's for everybody? I do. Okay. I do. I do. I mean, statistically speaking, there are more women over the age of 45 playing video games than there are young men under the age of 21, statistically speaking, just in terms of a, a number of audience. It may not be, it might be a smaller percentage, but in terms of total number of players, there's a very sizable audience there. The challenge, which is, I think, what you alluded to, is that marketing explicitly as gaming or add to the to explicitly to someone as a gamer is going to look different if you're trying to reach someone who is older and the types of games that they play and the way in which you reach them reach them is going to look fundamentally different so you may they may be resistant to being self-identified as a gamer from a messaging standpoint but mm. from a platform standpoint absolutely i mean actually the aarp actually did a big gaming report Last year, it's the first time they've ever done something like that because they have seen such a growth in video game play. And that, that, that basically started with the Wii functionally that helped kick that off where you saw more older folks who were older folks who were purchasing the Wii, spending time playing it. And so you just have to change your tactics. But I'm going to say yes, in the sense that I, since so many people play games at this point, that is where your audience is. But I'm going to say no in the sense that like, 
the capabilities for your marketing team may not that may not be a place where they feel comfortable playing or you may not have the capabilities there. So I'm sort of obviously obligated to be like games are the future, but at the same time, I do think it's something that requires deep consideration if you can commit significant you can if can you commit real resources to it? Can you build a long-term plan? And most importantly, if you are the only person at an organization that is pushing for gaming, it doesn't matter how strongly, much like me at the Wall Street Journal, like I have all the data and the facts and everything, but these are big organizations. And so that may not necessarily be on their radar or something that they're going to commit to significant resources to. So it'd be yes with an asterisk, I suppose, would be my answer to, you, <laughs> to that question. Well, thank you. This has been a great talk about gaming, how to engage with audiences and uh, how brands can show up authentically and how they should be thinking about it. So thank you so much for sharing the time with us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.